Welcome to the Small Town Wealth Podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Small Town Wealth Podcast. This is our very first episode. Our first guest is a special one indeed. His name is Darren Jacklin. Darren is a world-class entrepreneur and speaker who has traveled many corners of the world to spread his wealth of knowledge. Darren comes from humble beginnings, which is the primary reason we believe he is the perfect person to have as our first guest. He has personally trained and developed over 1 million people in over 46 countries. He has mentored a wide range of people from entrepreneurs to business owners to industry leaders, focusing on utilizing strengths that lie dormant within us to show people how to create strategies, execute on those strategies, and track the results. He has harnessed the attention of many well-known centers of influence, including the Wall Street Journal, Yahoo Finance, NBC TV, CBS TV, Global TV, as well as countless newspapers, movie producers, best-selling authors, CEOs, business experts, and family offices. He has personally trained 157 Fortune 500 companies, such as Microsoft, AT&T, and Barclays Bank. Most recently, he is also closing on a monumental $1.8 billion deal as co-founder of Solaris Resort and Estates Ultra Luxury Private Islands. He's agreed to come on to share his experiences, and what's really cool about Darren is his, how warm and approachable he is coming from the small town of Vernon where this podcast originates. This is going to be completely actionable advice from a big city player happy to share his thoughts with all who are willing to listen. All right, welcome, Darren. Uh, so this is uh, this is the first podcast here, and thank you for stopping by. We want to get started and hear a little bit about your story. Tell us a little bit about uh, right from the beginning. Let's start from the sure. start. Like nobody Absolutely. knows who you are. Yeah, unfiltered. Yeah, well, I'm grateful <laughs> to be here. So I uh, I grew up in a small town in uh, Swift Current, Saskatchewan, Canada, less than 20,000 people in population, uh, failed grade one of public school, and was labeled and diagnosed with a learning disability and a reading disability. And so it was set back. And all through my public education from grade one to grade 12, I was put into modified special education classes in school. And so I was in one of those small learning classes that, uh, you know, I wasn't in the regular size school. I was in a small learning school. And the interesting thing was that, um, you know, I was labeled a learning disability, reading disability, and really felt invisible. Good majority of my life, I felt, uh, you know, invisible, felt aloof. I felt stupid. I felt not good enough, never smart enough. When I was seven years of age in Swift Current, what I did was, because I just didn't feel wanted in society, didn't feel wanted in my family, didn't feel wanted in, uh, you know, the school system, I actually went out and created my first little business called Rent-A-Kid. And I would go out and cut grass and shovel sidewalks and deliver newspapers. It was the Regina Leader Post newspaper six days a week. And it was my way of, of uh, connecting with people in the community where I lived. And so uh, I would do that. And, you know, evenings and weekends and during summer holidays, my best friends in my neighborhood that I went to school with, you know, rather than asking and bugging our parents for money to get a bicycle or hockey equipment or something like that, we just wanted to go solve a problem. So we had two questions we always asked. Who's got our money and where is it? Yeah. And where we went for it was go ring the doorbell, knock on the doors. And we realized that after we were cutting grass and shoveling sidewalks in the wintertime, we realized if we went to different neighborhoods of the different postal code or zip code, they had bigger lawns to cut. They had uh, yeah. more grass, you know, and stuff like that. And so what we would do is we'd go ring the dentist, you know, doorbells. And I grew up in a middle-income family. So we'd find the bigger, more affluent neighborhoods. Yeah. And because we earned more money there because they had more disposable income. Oh, and, right. and, you know, and sometimes they had more than one home. They had two or three homes. Yeah. 
And so we just learned how to, you know, as we learn now, monetize or leverage that. And so by the time I was nine years of age, I had best friends in my neighborhood. They were working with me in the rent-a-kid business. And we would go around to different telephone poles and we would put up on, you know, different no- uh, notices to hire us. And then my neighbor was the deputy premier of Saskatchewan back in the 1980s, 1990s. So some of your listeners will remember Grant Devine was the premier of uh, Saskatchewan, Canada. Well, the deputy premier was Pat Smith or Patricia Smith. She lived in my neighborhood. She was my neighbor right across the street. So I went to Pat Smith. I was just a young little kid, built really strong rapport with her. And I was very charismatic and stuff like that, doing business. So I really sucked at school and social skills, really sucked. But when it came to business or entrepreneurial skills, I accelerated in that, right? It was very on purpose with that. So I had Pat Smith actually endorse me from the provincial government of Saskatchewan, Canada, on government letterhead, my rent-a-kid business. And I went to the school, talked to the secretary there, and she mass photocopied that uh, letter from the the deputy premier of Saskatchewan. Then I would insert it into all the Regina Leader Post newspapers as a kid. So every house that I delivered a paid subscription to the newspaper, they would get this letter from the deputy premier of Saskatchewan. Then every house (laughs) that I didn't have a newspaper delivered to, I put in their mailbox as a solicitation. So I started to get become really branded and well-known in my neighborhood as the guy that would solve problems. And so I started earning money. When I got into junior high school, I really sucked academically. I didn't have good marks. So what I did was I started to realize that the girls, you know, we're, we're becoming teenagers now and puberty and stuff like that. I realized, okay, the girls I'm going out with are starting to get into hair and makeup and jewelry and vanity and wanting to look good. So I met a lady I went to school with a guy, Jason. His mom sold Mary Kay Cosmetics. So I went to her and I said, listen, can I buy the Mary Kay Cosmetics from you? And I want to sell it to the girls or give it to the girls at school. And I'll meet with them after school, outside of school property. And I'm going to create what we call today joint venturing or teamwork or delegation. But what I did is I had the straight A students. I was a D student in school. And I had the straight A academic students. They did my homework. Right. So in school, they call that cheating. In real world and business, we call that delegation, teamwork, leveraging, joint venturing, right? Leveraging. So I had the straight A students do all my homework. And that's how I got through junior high school, then eventually into high school. And when I reached grade 11 of public education, I was taken out of class one day by a guidance counselor and a school teacher for having a D average. And they sat me down in the guidance counselor's office and said, Darren, based on your academic marks, you're not going to go very far. And so you may not grade, graduate from grade 12 and get your grade 12 education. And so what happened was I, um, you know, really affected my self-worth, my self-confidence. In fact, I was even labeled a throwaway kid uh, by the guidance counselor. He said, you know, you're never going to amount to much. You're one of these throwaway kids, right? You're, you're, you'll dig ditches or do stuff, but you'll never amount to much in your life. And it really affected me. So I, I did graduate from grade 12, Swift Current Comprehensive High School, and just barely passed by. And it's funny because some people sometimes ask me, they go, well, if these A students were helping you, why didn't you get higher marks? I had to play it cool because if I got too well of marks, how can I go from a D student to all of a sudden a B student? They're going to think something's up here. So it was a strategy that I, I was very good at strategy and execution. I still to this day, it's a gift I have. I'm blessed with that. Is I'm very good at strategy and execution and getting things done and making things happen. And so what I did was I just passed high school, left Swift Current, Saskatchewan, Canada, came out to the Okanagan Valley where we are today here in Vernon, British Columbia, Canada. And I had very low self-esteem, very insecure, a lot of negative self-talk. I had no direction. I had no focus. I had no purpose. I was, I was just living day to day. I was, I was, I was, I was, you know, this 18, 19, 20 year old young man walking around like living dead. I just hadn't fallen over yet. I was totally unconscious, totally unconscious. Never did a drug in my life to this day. So I'm totally drug free. Never was big into alcohol. I'm the guy that used to take people to parties and then we'd do bush parties in Saskatchewan and take them to a bush party. 
and then everybody would I'd drive everybody home and I'd go back to the bush party and I'd clean up all the bottles and cans and take them to the recycling depot. You know, I mean, I was always an entrepreneur at heart of that way, always looking ways to solve problems, right? And so when I came out to Vernon, British Columbia, Canada, I struggled with my identity and my direction and my focus and my purpose. So I actually did multiple suicide attempts to end my life. And uh, not too far from here, there's a place called Sparkling Hills or Prairie Ridge Golf Course. I used to go out there on that road and used to drive my car at 140 kilometers an hour, 85 miles per hour towards a telephone pole. And I used to visualize and premeditate suicide. And, uh, so I did it over about, I don't know, several, several months of doing that. And on my last suicide attempt, I actually realized, okay, I can't do this. I'm just too scared. And so I actually drove my car down to the people place here in Vernon. And, and, uh, there was a nonprofit organization many years ago that was there that was a crisis line and they did, uh, counseling and stuff like this, uh, back in the 1990s. And I actually went in there and turned myself in. And I said, listen, I need help. I'm suicidal. I need help. So this lady met with me and she started to counsel me. I had no money. So she started to counsel me. And then she referred me to Dale Carnegie. Well, I didn't know who Dale Carnegie was. So I went to the Prestige Inn Hotel here in Vernon, went there one day, and I'm walking around the Prestige Inn Hotel here in Vernon, British Columbia, looking for Dale Carnegie. And the lady at the front desk, she goes, well, you have to go upstairs to the conference center to Dale Carnegie. So I'm walking around thinking there's a real human being by the name of Dale Carnegie. Not realizing the guy's been passed away and he left this legacy called the Dale yeah. Carnegie Training Program. And he also wrote the best-selling book called How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's a best-selling book. book. So I went in, yeah, exactly. So I went into this medium room and I thought, what the heck's going on here? I thought I was supposed to meet this guy named Dale Carnegie. So I went in there and there's all these chairs in this seminar room. And I was way out of my comfort zone, terrified to death. Walked in there and the lady said, oh, welcome. You're here to see the Dale Carnegie Program. And I thought, I was supposed to meet Dale Carnegie. She says, oh, no, he's passed away many years, but he's got this course that from this book called How to Win Friends and Influence People. So I sat in there. It was a phenomenal presentation. And then they signed you up for a 12-week program for this Dale Carnegie program. Well, I didn't know anything about it. I so I said, listen, I don't have the money, but I can do a payment plan, right? So I did a payment plan over an extended period of time, and I took this course. And what I realized walking into this room, going to this program was, it was only my perspective in the world. You see, I didn't trust people. I didn't like so much people because I was labeled with a learning disability and a reading disability. I was told I was not good enough. I was stupid. I was put on Ritalin as a kid in school, right? I was medicated. So I had all this negative self-talk and, and, and I didn't trust people. I didn't trust the educational system. I didn't trust my family, my parents, none of this stuff, right? I wasn't a troublemaker. I didn't get in trouble with the law, but I did. The only thing I did was a kid as a teenager. It was kind of funny. I had some friends I went to school with and what we used to do is we used to go into neighborhoods and, you know, they didn't have alarm systems or people didn't lock their doors in this small community of less than 20,000 people, you know, back in the 80s and early 90s. So we used to go in at nighttime, seeing the people's homes. We never stole anything, but we actually used to rearrange their furniture while they were sleeping in the house. So we'd open your door while you're sleeping upstairs. We'd rearrange your kitchen furniture and your living room furniture and your plants <laughs> and your things on your wall, your pictures on your wall. So when you wake up and come downstairs in the morning, your furniture is rearranged. <laughs> Just as a practical joke. <laughs> you can't do it today because people have alarm systems and video cameras and stuff like that. Not exactly is as, as, uh, as convenient anymore. Yeah. <laughs> we had that moment in time, that era of time where you could do that growing up. And so the thing was is that I went through this Dale Carnegie program and I had a profound life-changing experience of working in terms of professional and personal training development. And that was a start of my personal development or self-development journey. And then um, just after that time, I had co-signed a loan for two guys in Kelowna, British Columbia, Canada, not too far from Vernon here. I co-signed two guys for a loan. I had made some money, put some money into investments. I had a great credit rating. I'm in my early 20s and you know, early 1990s. I'm excited. And I met these two guys at Earl's Restaurant in Kelowna, Earl's on top. 
and they had a startup business company. And I thought, well, cool, startup opportunity. I've got, you know, I got money in the bank. I got great credit. So I met with these guys and they said, hey, why don't you be our co-signer and our investor, our passive investor? So I was excited. So I didn't know anything about due diligence or research or fact-finding or doing a discovery process with people. I knew nothing. It was in the beginning. In the beginning. Yeah, right. early 20s, low self-esteem, no direction, no focus, no purpose. But no through experience. my rented business, yeah, no experience, no mentors, no coaches, learning disability, reading disability. So I didn't read. I didn't study. We didn't have the internet back then. So I went ahead, went to the bank, and I co-signed all the loans and all the lines of credit. And I give them all the money I had in the bank, which was a whole bunch of cash. I give them to them in a brown paper bag. Okay. So 120 business days later, the bank called a demand loan because something I learned very valuable. And if your listeners are taking notes, you want to write this down. In the banking industry, there's a thing called a GSA. And most people have never heard of a GSA. It cost me tens of thousands of dollars as a mistake to learn what a GSA. A GSA stands for a General Security Agreement. It's in the small, fine legal print of a contract with the bank called a GSA, called a General Security Agreement. And what that means is if I have a business partner or I'm doing a loan or a joint venture and I'm involved with a financial lending institution, they will do a thing called a General Security Agreement, which means that if, if, if the primary people default on it, and, and I'm just giving you my version, there's probably a legal definition that's more, more right, precise, right. but people can research online. But what happened was these two guys did not pay their loans. And so I was the co-signer. So it defaulted to me. Now you're on the hook. And now I'm on yeah. the hook. And one day I'm living in Winfield between Vernon and Kelowna here in Lake Country now. And I had a knock on my door and it was a bailer from the bank coming to repossess my car because it was collateralized through the general security agreement. Oh my goodness. And this car that I had worked my butt off, paid cash for the car, was collateralized through the general security agreement. And any asset that I had, any investment I had, was now collateralized to the bank through the general security agreement. And they had a chance to take it away from me and seize it. And I lost, I was wiped right out financially. So I went from a phenomenal credit rating to like, I think I was like at 320 with the Equifax score here in Canada. Like when I would go apply for a loan, like lights and sirens would go off, right? Like, like Money Mart wouldn't even give me a loan, right? That's how bad I was. Like I, I was, I was, if you guys know in Canada, um, I was an R9 for credit. So R9 is worst case scenario you can get in Canada. It's worst case scenario. So if you look at anybody in Canada, it's a worst case scenario situation. I was an R9 credit score. <laughs> okay, so I, here I am, right? I'm, I'm in my early 20s. I'm starting to turn my life around, starting to get some focus, starting to get some direction, starting to get some hustle, things like that, starting to pick myself up after coming through multiple suicide attempts and going through Dale Carnegie training. Then I joined Toastmasters International here in Vernon, public speaking organization, phenomenal organization. Highly recommend people look at that and take it because it will change your life. And what happened was I crashed at rock bottom. So I ended up going, living on the streets, living on welfare. And I actually went and got welfare checks here in Vernon. Now, I was under a lawsuit from the banks, right? My early 20s under lawsuits. And they were going after me because of these other outstanding loans and lines of credit that these guys didn't take care of and look after. And now, what happened was back in the early 1990s, we were using landline telephones and we are using snail mail. So we didn't have mobile phones. So what was happening was when the collection calls were coming in and the collection letters were going, it was going to an address in Kelowna. Well, I didn't live in Kelowna. And so I never got the collection calls. I never got the collection letters. So I never knew what was happening behind the scenes because I wasn't managing this. I wasn't being responsible. I didn't know. I, I, as, an, as a new investor, co-signer, I didn't know anything about this kind of stuff. And so um, I had to go to court one day. And I go into court. You know, the bank's suing me. I had to go to court one day. And I was terrified to go to the bank. And the judge calls me up in front of the uh, courtroom. And he goes, young fella, he goes, where's your paperwork? 
I said, I have no paperwork. I was totally disorganized. I had no paperwork, right? I didn't even sign the loan. I didn't even, I didn't have a written agreement, right? I, didn't, I wasn't even papered up with the guys I co-signed loans for. I wasn't even papered up. I had nothing. It was all verbal, right? Oh We're just excited. I was elated. I was all jacked up on stuff. So said all this. So, so the judge calls me up and he goes, listen, young fella, where's all your paperwork? I said, I have no paperwork. He goes, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to teach you something right now, young fella. He said, we're going to take a recess. And he says, um, here's the thing. He said, what I want you to look at, he says, with, if it has not been written, it has not been said in the court of law. And so I realize now that when you're doing business deals, you've got to get papered up. You've got to have written agreements because if it's not been written, it's not been said. Well, that's really interesting because like you're, you're learning stuff as you go, but you, at that point, it seems like you've already got this wealth of knowledge from all these, you know, quote unquote mistakes or, or you know, paths that you've taken. Mm-hmm. You've already become that much more of a businessman just by all of those mistakes. Absolutely. So now you're learning like not only the mistakes that precipitated that, but also what you need to do next. Yeah. The legal stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I'm in this court and I'm terrified. I'm representing myself, right? There's no legal aid. There's no lawyers that couldn't afford that. Didn't know any of those people. Didn't travel in those circles. So I, they ended up getting a judgment against me. It took me about eight years to pay everything all off. Worked my butt off to do all that. And so it was interesting. So I leave the courthouse. I'm living on welfare. I'm actually living in an apple orchard now at Davison Orchards here in Vernon on Bella Vista Road, if you guys know that. So during the yeah, day, yeah, nighttime, totally. I'd go sleep in the apple orchard, sneak in there. And the apples weren't ready yet, so I couldn't eat the apples. So during the daytime, I would go out and wander around the streets of Vernon. And there was a Greek restaurant here at the time that I went in the back, in the back alley, and they had a garbage dumpster. And that's where I was going to eat my next meal was out of a garbage dumpster. But I did it very strategically. What I did was I found a guy who was a cook who was smoking in the back alley. And I said to him, I said, listen, I'm homeless. I shouldn't be here. I'm in my early 20s. Can you help me out, man? And he didn't really care about me. He was just on his break, right? Right, right? I was nobody to him. And what he did was he managed to create like a joint venture with me where he said, tell you what, I'm not going to give you the food off people's plates, Right, but we do you know throw food out from the walking cooler and stuff like that. We have some food that's left over that nobody ever touches. I'll put it on this side of the garbage dumpster that you can eat. So it's it's really it's 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 you know it's still clean food, but it's in a garbage dumpster. Totally, and you got to dig through it to get it. Yeah. So I had to psych myself out mentally in terms of mental toughness to think, okay, I'm eating out of a garbage dumpster, <laughs> but I was too proud, I had too much of an ego, and I wanted to look good, and I didn't want to look bad. And I grew up in a middle income family. And my family couldn't help me. My family says, you know, you got to go out and get a job, right? I come from a family. Most of my family's in government or, you know, government employees. So here I am becoming an entrepreneur. And you remember 10, 15 years ago when you said to somebody you're an entrepreneur, it was like telling somebody you're a vegan or a vegetarian. Yeah, exactly. You'd laugh at your face. It's like, oh, you're one of those people. Totally. Right? Whereas today, entrepreneurship is more socially acceptable in in, in North America and internationally. But back then, it was like being a vegan or a vegetarian. And so I... um, what I did was through Toastmasters, I was going to these Toastmasters meeting, very low self-esteem, very insecure. And in January of 1995, a lady by the name of Sue Urquhart, who lives here in Vernon, British Columbia, she was in our club as a member. And I was doing a speech because I was terrified. My first speech in Toastmasters was what we call an icebreaker. It's three to five minutes. And you have to prepare a little backstory about your life. I was so terrified that night at the Best Western Vernon Lodge Hotel that I thought, okay, I'm, I'm up after the break here in this Toastmasters meeting. I thought, you know, what's worst case scenario? What's best case scenario? You know, what's the benefits? What's the drawbacks? I thought, you know what? I can't present myself. I can't speak. I'm just too nervous, right? Too much anxiety. I went in the washroom. I threw up a few times in the washroom at, at the hotel. I was so terrified. So I went out and I pulled the fire alarm on the hotel. And I figured if I just pull a fire alarm, then we'll evacuate the hotel. The Toastmasters meeting will get delayed. I won't have to do my bigger speech. I'll get off the hook for a couple weeks and I can buy some more time. So I pulled the fire alarm in the hotel and I thought, okay, if I get fined, I'll figure a way to pay the fine and deal with the consequences. <laughs> so I pulled the fire alarm hotel in the hotel. 
what happened was it was an internal firearm. It didn't activate the fire department. And so one of the people from the maintenance department came down and reset it, and the event went on. And I had to present, and I was terrified. And a couple times later, Sue Urquhart watched me present in Toastmasters, and she said, listen, I, she was the general evaluator, and she goes, I believe that Darren Jacklin is somebody that we can develop, train and develop here in this club and mentor him to become a world-class speaker and trainer. And at that moment, she believed more in me than I actually believed in myself because I didn't believe in myself. Took a little bit of external. Absolutely. Yeah. And I was looking for external validation and approval. And, and so I actually went from there to getting a job as a telemarketer because I used to was terrified of sales. I, I was terrified. I was terrified of rejection. And so I thought, okay, how do I get paid to get rejected? So I went and got a job for minimum wage dollars as a telemarketer. And I worked for McLean's Magazine. And I learned to smile and dial, dial for dollars. And I had to make 400 cold calls a shift was our quota. And we dialed across Canada and we would phone various different people based on postal code. And we'd phone them between 5 p.m. and 9 p.m. Monday to Friday. We'd smile and dial. And we'd sell them magazine subscriptions over the phone. You know, And within four months after my probation, I became number four months. I became in the top. And then within seven months, I was number one in Canada during that time for telemarketer. Seven months, eh? yeah. How old were you at this time? Oh gosh, early 20s. Yeah. Early 20s still? So early tw- how many years would this be since the whole debacle with the courts and everything? It was right around, it was during that time. It was during that time? Yeah, yeah all that Like through. a two-year, three-year window? Somewhere or? like that, yeah, early 1990s. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so it was... picked it up right like, Oh, it was really wild because I was hungry. I was I was just struggling, right? Yeah. And... Never say die. Oh, yeah. It was wild. And so I'm doing these calls and, and I and I, and I I averaged two sales. So we statistically, the numbers, we'd make 400 calls a shift. I would average 398. So some would be no nobody no shows, nobody be at home or I'd get a, an answer machine or something like that. So I'd get out of service. But on average, I'd have 398 rejections and two yeses. Per 400 calls. So I'd average two sales per 400 phone calls. And that was the best in Canada. And I was best in Canada. Some people didn't get any per shift. Some got one. And I was consistent every day with right, my numbers. Right. That's a good, a really great example of just looking at the uh, the micro successes to, to keep you going. Because there's so many people that would just be completely discouraged oh, yeah. by calling 398 people and getting rejected by them. That's and then of out of 400, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Out of 400, you get two that say yes. Like, yeah. It's a really great example of just looking at the tiny, tiny percentage that's going well to keep you going. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it was interesting because it was a revolving door of attrition. Like, we, we, you know, people were all, they were always running ads in the newspapers and recruiting, interviewing people. And people would come in and I was always intimidated and scared because like, oh my gosh, this guy or girl comes in or she's, you know, and we used to, sometimes we'd hire um, radio disc jockeys because they didn't earn a lot of money as disc jockeys. So they'd come in and they got the radio voice. And so they're very, um, you know, hypnotizing in a sense, magnetic and charismatic on the phone as a telemarketer. No kidding. And plus, if they heard them on the radio, people were like, I recognize that guy's voice. I recognize her voice. And so they would come in and they would usually last one to two to three days at the most. If somebody started on a Monday, the, the, the statistics, if you see them by Friday, was slim. It was just a revolving door of people not because, because that day, like we talked in front of a mirror. We had to look at a mirror when we were telemarketing. And it's one thing when you're in you, it's great training development. If you're making calls, or you're in sales or marketing and you have to make outbound or inbound calls is have a mirror in front of you. And what happened was once I hit the peak, I couldn't earn any more money with McLean's. I hit all the bonus structures and all the prizes. I actually left. And then in June of 1995 in my one bedroom apartment here in Vernon from the Yellow Pages, I used to call. And we had, uh, I think it was called Meridian Telephones. And we had pre-programmed phones or telemarketing phones. I actually used the same phones. And I used to telemarket from my own my own home. 
And so what I did was I used to make 400 cold calls a day, telemarketing companies across uh, British Columbia for my corporate training services. And I had no formal education, no degrees. I had Toastmasters and Dale Carnegie, and I went to the public library and started reading books. And I, and, I, and I was just so determined that I wanted to train, you know, real estate companies and financial services companies and stuff like that. And I, and I did over 1,000 speaking engagements for free over the course of 22 years. 1,000 free speaking engagements. Holy. And all I did was I came from a mindset of being a go-giver rather than a go-getter. And, and the thing is, see, if you help, Zig Ziglar always said, if you help enough people get what they want in their lives, you can have everything you want in your life. And it's about being a go-giver, not a go-getter. So I would drive from, you know, Vernon to Merritt and, uh, Sometimes I didn't have, you know, I, I sleep in my car because I didn't have the gas money to get back home. So I had to find something. There was a time, one time I went to Merritt and I did a speaking engagement in Merritt with the Chamber of Commerce. And I went and got an odd job in Merritt, helping a lady out in her, in her yard. So I get enough money to drive back home because I didn't have enough gas money. But I was so committed to what I wanted to do and I wanted to learn. And, you know, and, you know, you see a lot of things today in a lot of research where people get in 10,000 hours of training before they become an expert or top of their class or best in class or best right. practices. It's kind of like that predetermined figure. It's like you're either an expert or you're not. Did you put in your 10,000 hours? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. So I did this and then I would just, you know, through just adversities and failures and I was doing different odd jobs around the Okanagan Valley here, picking apples, picking watermelon, cantaloupe, doing different things so that I could constantly keep building and developing myself. And I actually am grateful. Uh, one time I was when I was uh, living in the apple orchard, I went and got a job for cash picking watermelons out in Grandview Flats here in Armstrong, not too, you know, 20 minutes from here. And this farmer uh, hired me and I was, I would, I wasn't the greatest as a worker in the field. It was just not my strength, but I was good on the side of the road selling the watermelon because I loved to interact. I love people, right? I love people. So I'd be on the side of the road selling watermelon and cantaloupe. And one day this guy drives by in a Lincoln town car and he pulls up an older gentleman and he pulls up and, uh, he, he gets out and, and he opens up his bill phone. He had five $1,000 Canadian dollar bills. And the first time ever in my life, I'd seen $1,000 bill. And it was a crisp $1,000 bill, Canadian dollar bill. They don't have them anymore. I was just going to say, they don't exist anymore. Yeah. You probably go online and Google it under images and see it on Google. They're $1,000 bills. And I was memorized by this guy having a $1,000 bill. I didn't travel in those circles. I didn't grow up in those environments. So for me to see somebody with a $1,000 bill was like, wow, that's fascinating. So he bought it. He bought like a, I don't know, it was $100 of a watermelon in cash. Give me a $100 bill. And I'm like, wow, okay. And give me a tip. The next day he came back for three days straight in a row. He pulled up in his Lincoln town car and bought watermelon off me. And I think, okay, wait a second. This is weird because it's most, watermelon. yeah, because here in Canada, we have loonies and toonies. A $1 coin is a loonie. A $2 coin is called a toonie, right? So most people just spend like, you know, four, five, eight dollars most, tops $10 on watermelon, right? This guy spent a hundred bucks. So after three days, he spent several hundreds of dollars of the watermelon. And then, okay, this guy's selling more watermelon down the street or he's got a retail store or he's got a, he's, you know, he's got a fruit stand or something like that. He's selling, he's repurposing, he's reselling it. So I asked the guy, I said, are you reselling the water? He goes, no, I'm using it for my own personal use. So he said, I said, I want to meet with you. So I go meet him at Bean to Cup here in Vernon, this little coffee shop. I take my journal with me, go meet him. And I start asking him questions and he thinks that I'm actually the uh, farmer and I'm not, I'm just a worker. And so I started asking him all these questions and I'm curious about, you know, why would you carry $5,000 cash on you? I mean, are you a drug dealer? Like, what are you doing? Like, I've never seen somebody with $5,000 cash and driving this Lincoln town car. So what happened was he said to me, he says, um, he, he told me that he, he does real estate investing and he's an entrepreneur. And as I got to know him a little bit more at the time I met him, he had had over 4,000 real estate properties that every month people would make their mortgage payment to him. 
4,000 4, in his portfolio. Oh, 4,000 properties or doors? Uh, he, so he had a whole real estate. <laughs> yeah, so he had commercial and residential real estate. Yeah. And then he had a mortgage broker company, just like a bank. So he had 4,000 mortgages. So people okay. who couldn't qualify for a bank mortgage, they would come to his private investment mortgage company and he would lend them the money and actually own their house. Like, you know, immigrants coming to the country or somebody didn't have a really, you know, they're up and down their credit score or divorce or medical challenge. He would do um, their mortgage. Now, here's the interesting thing. This guy lived off his money's interest, interest. Now, now, th now just think about that. This guy lived off his money's interest, interest. Okay, elaborate. Yeah. <laughs> so you have a principal. So if you, yeah. go, if you put money into a bank, yeah. that's the principal. And then you get an interest from the bank account. So here in Canada, it could be the Royal Bank of Canada as an example. Right. So you put money into a checking or savings account, and you get, you know, what, quarter percent of interest. So you have a principal, and you have the interest. So he, had, he lived off his money's interest, interest. So the oh, principal was so high, it was millions and millions of dollars a month of cash flow coming into his business accounts that the money's, he lived off his money. So he never touched his principal. So if you look at the principal as being a goose, the goose has an egg, and then that egg grows up and creates another goose that lays an egg. Right. And that's what he lived off of. So the monster was so big that yeah. the residual impact of that enabled him to live off a lot less than what that principal was. Yeah, he had so much cash flow, positive cash flow coming right. in every month that he could never spend the principal or the interest. He that's lived off the money's interest, interest. Yeah, and when he, you look at the full at picture yeah. of assets, it's just a monster. It and is, yeah. he can live off, like you said, the, the egg from the egg of the yeah, other goose. Yeah. Like it's just, <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. That's phenomenal. So he became a teacher and mentor to me. And for those of you... If you guys remember, Robert Kiyosaki wrote the New York Times bestselling book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, right? So Robert Kiyosaki talks about the four different quadrants in his book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, the employee quadrant, the self-employed quadrant, the business owner, and the investor. This gentleman operated in the I quadrant, the investor quadrant, okay? So I'd be so he, he became my mentor, and I remember going out to his house one day, uh, and we went out to his house, and, and, and he had properties all over the world. But he mainly stayed in the Okanagan Valley because he loved the lifestyle here. And I go to his house one day. He had this big log home. It was 12,000 square feet. And it was a massive-sized log home. And I go and I knock on the door. I board a friend of mine's car to go out there. I was so, I was so scared that I walk, go out there, ring, knock on his door. And this lady comes to the door. And I thought it was his daughter. Okay? So she says, come on in. He'll be right with you in just a moment. And so I go in, and she says, can I make you something to eat? I said, oh, that's fine. She goes, can I get you something to drink? I said, no. She says, would you like a smoothie? You want, you want a salad? I said, well, that's fine. Right? I didn't want to inconvenience her. Right. So he comes in. He goes, he goes well, did, did she get you something to eat? Or something? I said, no, that's fine. She goes, no, no, that's her job. I said, what do you mean that's her job? Isn't this your daughter or your wife? And he goes, no, this is my personal chef. She's my, on my staff. She's my full-time personal chef. Wow. I said, a personal chef? Really? You like have a personal chef? What is that? Yeah. yeah. There's a whole, you know, I never, never grew up in those kind of neighborhoods where somebody had a personal chef. That was something I'd see on television, right? Yeah. And so I go into this room and he says, well, my young fella, he says, what do you want to learn about? I said, well, what do you want to teach me? And he had a flip chart and, and, and it was interesting. He says, well, I want you to meet a, in the next little bit. Some people are going to be coming over and this is my team. And I said, okay. And, and it brings you back to like, remember Henry Ford? And remember the book called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill? And remember the mastermind principles? Yeah. Okay. So this gentleman had a mastermind in his living room that I got a chance to participate. Remember, I, had, I wasn't going anywhere. I, I was living on the streets. I was homeless. I was on welfare for a period of time, selling watermelon and cantaloupe. So this guy invites me out to his living room. So he has his peers there. Yeah. And he had, he had his accountant show up. He had his lawyers show up. He had his bankers show up. He had his mortgage brokers show up. He had his people who sourced deal flow for him, his salespeople, bird dog deals, his joint venture. So he had this whole team of men and women that showed up. That was maybe a dozen people in the room. Wow. 
And, and so it's interesting. So all these people are talking about all this stuff about mortgages and, and rates return and investment and cash flow and asset protection and family office and all this kind of stuff way over my head. I didn't understand anything that was going on. So at the end of the meeting, everybody leaves after a few hours and I'm there with him by myself. And he says, well, my young fellow, well, my man, what did you learn? And I said, you know what? To be honest with you, I said, I don't, I don't learn anything. I was just really inspired and motivated by the energy in the room. But these people are too smart for me. Like they're, like they're, eight, they're way over my head. He goes, let me share something with you. I have a grade three formal education. I said, you do? He goes, yeah, I have a grade three formal education. He said, these people that are in the room with me, he goes, they're on my team. He said, I'm the dumbest guy in the group, but I'm actually the smartest because I assemble teams. He goes, so many people are really smart, MBA, PhD, academic smart people. They want to be the smartest person in the room because of their image and their ego. They want to look good and they don't want to look bad. He goes, what I realized and how I built my affluence and my financial wealth, right? And in financial abundance is that I learned to bring smart people into a room and build teams. And I delegate the responsibility and I maintain control. And I go from doing to directing. Isn't that amazing? That's insane. That's absolutely insane. Yeah, so that's a that's a really, really great point about being the dumbest person in the room. It's not something that a lot of people think about. They always want to be the smartest, the best. But honestly, exactly. You want to surround yourself with people that are smarter and better than you to help yourself grow. One thing I do want to mention, Darren, is uh, going back to where you were saying um, like even going through the suicide moments and things like that. I mean, the best part was that you actually took action in the hardest point. You went out and you actually s sought help. Mm -hmm. You, you, you realized that this is not the path you want to go on and you wanted to, uh, you wanted to take action. And that also goes back to the, what you were talking about with the, uh, telemarketing job as well, where you're making so many calls and then you switch from being employed to do that to now doing it all for yourself and then mm -hmm. picking up little side jobs along the way to support yourself so you could do what you really wanted to do. And I find there's so many people that are so fancy right now with what they want to do. They want to start at the top rather than just going through the dirt and, you know, eating the crap and doing all the hard work that's necessary uh, to get where you need to go. I mean, even when you got those few calls that people said yes to, uh, to have you coach them, you still did it for free. Mm -hmm to build your brand, to build that leverage, to provide value and to gain your the valuable experience that you have now. So, I mean, going into that, one thing you always talk about is, and you know, we do like to pinpoint millennials, but it's not just millennials, it's all generations. So let's go to those people that are doer, doers rather than talkers. Mm -hmm. So let's get into the, let's get into that aspect. That's For something sure. you're really passionate about. Well, I'll give about. you an example. So, uh, you know, if you research me now, I've trained over 157 Fortune 500 companies. So I'm, I'm making cold calls out of my one-bedroom apartment here in Vernon. So what I used to do at nighttime as I go down to Staples here in Vernon, and I go down to the Overweighty, which is Save on Foods now, grocery store. And what I used to do is in the evenings when they're closed, I go into the recycling dumpsters. And I used to take out like the Kellogg's Corn Flake boxes and the Frosted Flakes and the Coca-Cola boxes. Then at Staples, I'd go and take out the, uh, you know, like... Apple computers and Microsoft boxes, you know, they'd sell the, the stuff in and I would cut them out and I would take an exact and I've cut it out, take my glue stick like that. And I used to put on my wall like vision boards and because I didn't have the self-confidence and the self-esteem and the belief system, what I used to do in my own journals and on scrap pieces of paper, I'd actually write out because I had to, I had to document things. I had my very visual learner. So I had to visualize that I could actually go in and train like Microsoft or AT&T or Black & Decker. If you go on to DarrenJacklin.com under the speaking category, you'll see all the corporate logos now. 
And that's good for brand awareness to show people, hey, I've trained all these corporations. But it's actually, actually for myself to remind me that that's how I started with my vision boards. Right. And what I used to do is I used to write down 200 benefits of why I'm smart enough, good enough, worthy enough, and deserving enough to actually go in and train these corporations. Because I had to build my belief system because I didn't, I had so much negative self-talk. Like, who am I? I'm this kid who grew up in Swift Current, Saskatchewan, labeled with a learning disability and a reading disability, barely passed public high school, was labeled a throwaway kid. How am I to go in and train these large corporations in the world when I have no MBA or PhD from Harvard or Stanford or Yale University? I'm a nobody. I'm from a small town, right? So I had to believe, build the belief that myself that I could actually do it and I was actually smart enough and good enough. And so when people want to do things and they want to go in and pitch some organization or they want to raise money or they want to get a job or get a promotion, take some private time with yourself in a journal and write down the benefits of why you're smart enough and good enough. Why do you want that promotion? Why do you want that raise increase? Why do you want to earn more of a commission? Why do you want to do that deal? And, and, and build the belief on paper of why you're smart enough and good enough to do that. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's an awesome, awesome point. Um, yeah, so, and then going into like, like I said, there's there's doers and there's talkers. Absolutely. So there's lots of people that talk about doing things rather than actually. Well, doing the thing is, a lot of people watch people's lips. I watch people's feet. Yeah. Right. A lot of people have good intentions, but you know they don't they don't take action. And an interesting thing about doers and the, and, the, and the talkers, it's interesting. Fear does not live in action. Right. Fear does not fear fear. If you ask most people what is fear, people will say, well, it's false evidence appearing real. Well, that's an acronym. It's not it's not accurate. What fear is, is fear is an anticipation of pain, okay? So if fear is an anticipation of pain or anticipated pain, is fear past, is it present, or is it future? And I always ask people, where does it live? Well, it lives in the future. So your thoughts create your feelings, your feelings create your actions, and your actions create results. So if we look at thoughts and feelings, are thoughts and feelings internal in our life, or are they external in our life? So thoughts and feelings are internal. Our actions and our results are external. Okay, so so most people don't realize that the key thing is 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 that whatever you want, you've got to take action. Now the thing is, a lot of people today get stuck in process, but they're not good at execution. Right, too much like overthinking. Yeah, they get into analysis paralysis, or they get indecisive, or they analyze things to the nth degree, Mm -hmm. thinking it has to be perfect from the start rather than uh, rather than just getting started. How many millennials do you guys know today? Millennials that have all, all these books are reading, all these gurus are studying, all these internet marketers are studying and they watch all these Ted talks and YouTube videos, but they never take action. Thousands. Thousands. Right. Whereas what I do is you see a lot of my mentors that I have today in my life at 45, I don't have a whole wide range of mentors. I have mentors in different areas, but what I do is I study a specific mentor who's got practical results, him or her. And then I go deep dive with them and I study them very in depth. And I watch them because something to remember is never assume you're not being observed. We're always being watched and observed. And so the thing is, is that in the business world, talk is cheap. And so when people always tell me they're going to do something, I always just like, okay, we'll see. It'll be reasons or results. Because, uh, you know, it's interesting. Like, you know, I've trained and developed over a million people now in live events around the world, right? And it's interesting. I can take two people, sit them side by side in a workshop or a training development seminar. I sit them side by side, okay? They'll both take the same notes spend the same amount of time and they'll take they'll learn the same information. And 30 days later, I can follow up with them like a case study and find out what they applied and put into action. And one person will tell me how I was so busy, Darren. I had all this stuff with my family, my kids, my job, my career, life is just so busy. And the other person left the event and went immediately and applied stuff. I'll give you an example. Last night um, after the event I did yesterday, I, I met with a lady afterwards. We went to this restaurant. A whole bunch of us went to this restaurant. We're hanging out and you know having co- collaboration communities for that. And I said to this lady, I said, she flew in 
from Edmonton to Kelowna last night to come to the event. Okay. She met me on Facebook, never met me in person before. And I said, I said, what are you doing tonight? She goes, when I leave tonight, I'm going back to my hotel room and going to write down all the notes I took from you today, train us. I'm going to apply it and put it into my calendar and put it into an action plan. That's a serious student. That's somebody who's going to execute and take action. Okay. Versus somebody who's just going to talk about it. And so the thing is a lot of people talk about it, but the thing is you want to watch and observe people, right? It's part of a due diligence process, a discovery process. I always sit back and watch people and just watch them over a period of time. So I get approached all the time to be in joint ventures and strategic alliances, all that kind of stuff, and, and invest in companies. So I'll sit back and watch people to see what they're going to do, to see whether they're going to talk or they're actually going to move their feet. And the actions don't have to be perfect. Exactly. Like the actions is, is your practice, essentially, yeah. right? For sure. And that's why a lot of times when we go to, you know, I've been to numerous seminars and, and you know, real estate-related things just with the industry that I'm in. But unless I actually take notes or do some kind of action, or even better yet, teach someone else maybe someone that missed that you know specific seminar like oh what did i miss today oh you missed this 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 automatically i retain it faster Mm -hmm. and automatically you're applying it yeah yeah it's like you know applying by default Mm -hmm. um, in those cases but i mean if you're actually putting it into an action plan that's your practice it doesn't need to be perfect Mm -hmm. it's easy to get lost in in oh this idea would work this idea would work but like are you actually doing it that's the hardest part for sure yeah and getting into like what you were just saying earlier is not necessarily reading all those books and going, taking all those courses and things like that. Instead of watching what people are saying or trying to listen to what people are saying, mm-hmm. watch what they're doing, which is what you're saying about Absolutely. diving deep down. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Some, some people might say, Hey, I want to become a millionaire. So my question, what I do in terms of practicality is this, okay, great. Your assignment for the next 12 months is a minimum of two times a month is take a million out for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. And you might say, well, I don't know any millionaires. Okay, good. You have the internet today. So if, if you, you know I mean, if you were to go online to internet websites, where would millionaires hang out on internet websites? Well, luxury travel, yachting, boating clubs, private jet industries. So, so join the private jet group on LinkedIn, right? And start following these people. Join the private jet group on different websites. Join the yacht clubs. Go to these trade shows. Go to these events. Get around those environments. Go to the charity events. Okay, just like raising capital. I was, I guess, being at a conference recently, and, and these people were—they're all in the room raising money. Okay, and I was a guest speaker. And you got all these smart people on the on these panels, and they've never raised capital. I'm just closing a 1.8 billion dollar deal right now, over raising over a billion dollars in capital. So it's you know it's a completely different mindset and skill set. And so I asked the audience, we're at a Hilton hotel. I asked the audience, a few hundred people in the room. I said, let me ask you a question: How many in this room are staying at this hotel? Raise your hand. And about 20% of the audience was actually staying at the hotel. I said, so let's just, let's just do a real-time stuff. Where are we all staying? Airbnb, bed and breakfasts, friends, family, Motel 6, Holiday Inn, Days Inn, Ramada Hotel, all these hotels. I said, so let me ask you a question. When you guys get up this morning, wherever you were staying, was there money in that room? Could somebody write you a check for the amount of money you're raising for capital? And so, so some of you stayed at the Holiday Inn. You went there because it's free continental breakfast this morning because I used to do it. I said, did somebody write you a check? I said, the thing is, you've got to, if you're going to raise capital – wherever you go to eat, could somebody write you? So you might bump into somebody at a table beside you or you're, you're having a conversation with somebody who says, oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm in this startup company or I'm raising capital for this business or I've got this new invention or new idea. You know, or I want to get on Shark Tank or Dragon's Den TV show. So you want to put yourself into environments. See, most people that are raising capital, they're not in environments where people can write them a check. They don't go to a restaurant where, where somebody can write them a check. They don't stay in a hotel where somebody can write a check. They don't fly business class or first class. They, they take an Uber, which is fine, but do Uber black. And also, too, is they're, they're not in a limo. See, I, I'll go in limousines, not necessarily for the experience, but to meet the limo driver. Because that limo driver is driving around other decision makers. 
Okay. Like, like if I went flat bust today, I would move to a major city where I could borrow a nice car, or at least a nice car or buy a car. That's a nice luxury car. And I would go into an affluent neighborhood in that major city and I would just drive around with Uber and pick up the men and women and I would do the airport runs and I have a nice car that I'd borrow or lease or whatever it was to find some way to do it. And for the next six months, all I would do is hang out in an affluent community to get around who's got my money and where is it so I could start hanging around with people so I could get the ideas to rebuild my financial wealth back up again. That's phenomenal. Right? See, what most people do is they, they, they stay where they're comfortable. Whereas you want to, if somebody, if you're raising money, go to where money is. Right? If you're going to a dinner party, the people at that table, do they got money? If you're going to sleep in a hotel room, do they have money? Because you're going to be efficient and effective with your time. If you're, people say, yeah, I'm going to this conference. Okay. Does anybody in that room have any money to write you a check for your, for your capital raise? No. Then don't go to the event. I see so many people go to these meetup.com events, which is great, and these B&I groups and Chamber of Commerce, and they're going to different events without doing any due diligence, and nobody's got any money to write them a check. And the guy's are like, well, yeah, I'm only raising a million bucks. Okay, well, you can get a check from one person for a million bucks, or you can try and get a check from a few hundred or a few thousand people. But I tell you right now, getting a check from one person, if you're, and you'd be like, so a lot of times raising capital, I've done this before, where you get somebody who puts in five grand, and the thing is, they're scared about losing that money. Because most people have a lack and scarcity mindset versus abundance and prosperity. So they're scared about that five grand. Whereas if you got somebody who's got a million bucks, right? They're not, you know, they don't want to lose the money. But at the same time, their time is very valuable. They're not, they're not going to manage their, you know, you looking after it. They want you to look after the money. But they're not going to be micromanaging all the time most times. And here's something to remember about, about raising money. There's three types of money that you want to write down. There's calm money, cautious money, and nervous money. So whenever you're involved in a business deal... Like Shelby, you're involved in real estate, correct? Correct. So yes. when you're when you're dealing with real estate agents or you're dealing with real estate buyers or investors, they come to you and they're looking at a property. Before they invest, they're going to ask themselves a question. They're going to tell you, "Is my money calm, cautious, or nervous in this deal?" And if it's calm, they're going to get papered up and write the paperwork and put in the proposal and do the due deal, right? If it's cautious, they're going to want to do more research, do more due diligence, bring in a home inspector, run it by their accountant, run it by their lawyer, talk to a land surveyor, right? Talk to somebody, you know, they're going to do that. If it's nervous, they're going to walk away from the deal. And what I learned now is that if I look back on my first startup company with these two guys from Earl's restaurant that day, that money was nervous, but I was excited and I didn't know what calm, cautious, nervous money was. And, And from now on going forward in your life, whenever you go to buy something, ask yourself, am I calm? cautious or nervous in this deal right now and trust your gut and you will find that by following this you'll be amazed at how many times you train and develop your mental muscle from like and you look at some of the deals some of the places you've made mistakes and people listening if you've lost money in different deals like cryptocurrency right now okay i'm nervous I, that's why i won't invest in cryptocurrency it's too wild wild west for me right it's too speculation and there's been and people who are invested like i had a guy the other day told me oh, i made all this money in in, in cryptocurrency i said really Okay, show me your POF. He said, what's that? I said, proof of funds. Show me right now on your laptop the money you've made and show me it's liquid. He couldn't do it. I said, so you haven't really made all this money. You're selling me the sizzle. See, the thing is people don't realize when it comes to investing, everybody sells you the upside. You want to learn what the downside is. How do I protect my investment on the downside? Okay, so when I go into an investment, I always ask myself, okay, if worst case scenario happens, what's my exit strategy? Okay, if best case scenario happens, what's the upside? And I want to mitigate risk and liability and protect my downside of always looking at the blind spots of what's my downside. And most people, what they do is when they go into a business, they get elated, they get excited, and they buy the sizzle, not the steak. And they see all the the rows, but they don't see the thorns because everything has benefits and drawbacks, risk and reward. 
And so many people are blindsided to looking at the, so a lot of times with me, I have a good friend of mine, for example, and I, people, he's the type of guy you wouldn't bring out to a dinner party because people would say never invite him back because he's a brilliant guy. He's one of my due diligence guys. Okay. But if you meet him and you sit down with him for the first five minutes, you would think he's extremely negative, but his brain and he, and what he does for careers, he's a risk management guy. Right, he works right. in risk management, risk mitigation. So when you meet him, you think, oh my gosh, this guy's so negative. He's so doing, no, he's not. All he's doing is he's always looking for worst case scenarios. So when I go do due diligence on something, what I do is I always imagine every opportunity, every investment deal, even when you're buying real estate property, is you look, okay, my job is to, is to imagine each deal, each opportunity is a boat out in the water. And metaphorically, my job is to punch as many holes in that boat as possible to see if I can make the boat sink or make it swim. If, I, if it sinks, boom, walk away from the deal. If it swims, okay, now let's do more discovery and more due diligence to see if it's the right match and bring it to the finish line. So essentially, you know that that these are always going to be parts of it. The the risk is always going to be part of it. Absolutely, you're trying to mitigate it as much as you possibly can. You while betcha. Still keeping that positive mindset because often what people miss in these positive mindset seminars is that you can't just all be positive. You can't run into a deal blind and just be like, "Oh, this is going to work." I know it's going to work. I have the faith. But if you didn't do the research behind it, is it always going to work? Well, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example right now. I won't call somebody out, but I know somebody right now on on social media in the United States, lives in California, Instagram, some of that. And they made a bunch of money off of cryptocurrency here recently. And they, they bought a Ferrari. They bought all this stuff through cryptocurrency. What happens, they didn't pay taxes on it. And the IRS came after and repossessed his Lamborghini recently. And now you, you don't see him on Instagram and social media as much because, he, because they, they, they screenshot, IRS screenshotted everything about what he was doing and used his evidence against him in court. And they repossessed everything about him. And so that's the thing is these people are making money, but they're not protecting the downside and going to see an accountant and getting advice and legal advice to protect themselves right. and, and to be a law-abiding citizen and pay their necessary taxes and structuring it properly and legally. So such a good point. They're and buying the hype. The Even even worse than that is the people that – because let's, let's go with even deeper because there's people yeah. that are actually pulling out money and then they're buying stuff. But, yes, they're not paying taxes. Mm -hmm. it, hits them, it hits them uh, when they're not looking. But let's go deeper into sure. the people that are renting the Lamborghinis, renting the Beverly Hills house, renting the models for the day, renting mm -hmm. the baby giraffe or whatever you want, <laughs> yeah, and sure. shooting a video telling you how they're going to make you money Absolutely. and selling you their course where their business is selling you the, selling course. You the course. Yeah, there's no business behind the business. No. So it's so easy to flaunt with everything now that you just, and it goes right back to what you said about diving deeper and watching what people are doing rather mm -hmm. than what they're saying. Just because they post a video of stuff that they have doesn't mean they actually have it. Absolutely. I had a gentleman the other day, he's a financial planner, called me up in Vancouver and he said, I want to meet you with you for lunch. I said, okay, what's the meeting agenda? And he goes, well, I want to get to know you. I said, no, what's the really meeting agenda? Because that's a hidden agenda. Yeah, I said, right, what's the meaning agenda? He goes, I said, bottom line is you want me to become a client of yours. I, I said, yeah. He says, why work in wealth management with this private firm? I said, okay, great. Let me ask you a question. What's your personal financial net worth? And he goes, excuse me? I said, what is your personal financial net worth? And he goes, well, I'm, I'm licensed with the, you know, with, well, give me, I said, I don't care what your license is. I said, you're a private wealth manager. I want to know that you're a good steward of your own money. Because without integrity, nothing works. So if you're not in integrity with your own money and you can't tell me what your personal financial net worth is, why should I trust you as my advisor? Right. If, you can't, if you can't get your money right first, then why would you advise me? Exactly. Do you practice what you preach? Yeah. Exactly. So he says, you know, I guess we're not a match. And he hung up the phone. Phenomenal. He was a commissioned salesperson. He wasn't a wealth advisor. No. He was just trying to sell me a product. He was trying to sell me a product to hit a quota, wow. to earn a living. He wasn't a true wealth manager.
because a wealth manager would get their money right first before the advice. Yeah. And do you think social media has has kind of taken that in a negative spin or a positive spin? Well, the thing is people today buy so much hype because they have the lottery ticket mentality and they want instant gratification. And people don't want to do the hard work. See, if you do what's hard, life becomes easier. It's like going to a gym. The first couple of weeks, couple of months, go to a yoga class. Okay. Try, have you ever been to yoga? Go to yoga for the first three times and see how different your body feels. Okay. Cause your body's going to move and bend in different ways. It's never done before since you're a little kid in gymnastics or in, in, you know, in elementary school. So the thing is what happens is people want the quick fix. They want instant gratification. They don't want to put in the hard work. They don't want to be self-disciplined and reliable and focus, right? Because success requires a lot of accountability and a lot of responsibility. And the bigger the games you play, the more risks and rewards are, but also there's more levels of responsibility and accountability. Right. Because you've got people like yourself, you've got payroll, you know, you, you run a business every, you got payroll every two weeks. Those employees request their check to pay their rent and pay for their lifestyle. If you don't make the payroll, there's a big ripple effect. So you have a lot of accountability. So, so customer service to you is hugely important on how customers treat you because they don't come back. That affects the bottom line. It affects how people are going to get paid and how they have a job in a month from now. So true. Right. Absolutely. So the thing is, is that people don't people don't realize that today when they're they're getting involved with stuff, there's no research, there's no due diligence. My mistake was I never did any due diligence. I trusted everybody. I didn't do any due diligence. I believed everything everybody told me, and I didn't do any due I had a business partner a few years ago. I lost over $300,000 in this guy, got involved with this guy in a business, told me he was worth $100 million, this guy, all this stuff. I ended up paying for a lot of things. Uh, a few months into the relationship, the, the police called me and wanted to meet with me. And they said the guy who was my partner was a person of interest and they were watching us. And then if you guys know who CSIS is, the Canadian Secret Intelligence Service Agency, yep. like the CIA, they wow. called me up and said this guy was a person of interest. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want to get to know you guys. Like, I, don't want you, I, I, don't want, I don't want you guys to even know my name. I am a law body. I don't even want to know who you guys. I don't want to meet with you guys, right? But they're a person of interest. So I met with, this guy, I met with these people, these law enforcement. And I said, what do I do? And they go, you need to move away from this guy as far as possible. And disassociate from this guy because birds of feather flock together. And, and so I distanced myself from him. Then we found out that this guy had a lot of buried skeletons in the closet. We just didn't know where they were buried. Right. Okay. And this guy was this guy was pretending somebody who was not, right? And and you know, he's dealing with bad karma today. His life isn't so great today. We found out. But but the thing is, I saw this guy. And if you see this guy in public, you know, he had all the he had all the bling. Like he he had the watch, he had the jewelry, he had the suit, he had, he, he was a baller. Right, like he he had he had it going. You walk into a restaurant, and he was a baller behind the scenes. Smoke, it was all smoke and mirrors. Guy buying everything. For everyone. You, you betcha. Yeah. Right, and people just try. Oh man, this guy's got money. This guy's making things happen. Behind the scenes, just all a bunch of it was all a bunch of fluff. And so the thing is, is that you and I've learned. I'm around a lot of wealthy people now, a lot of very successful people, and some of the most wealthiest families I've ever been around. Okay, you they'd walk down the street, you'd never know they're wealthy or affluent. Because they don't want to bring exposure to themselves because they want their kids to go walk down the street and never have any risk with their children or their spouse or partner or home invasions or breaking enters or kidnapping, that kind of stuff. And so a lot of times you see people with the rented Lamborghinis and the homes, all this kind of stuff. It's all for show, for marketing. But behind the scenes, there's nothing of substance there. They have no track record. There's no reason. You know, I always ask when I, I get pitched all the time on LinkedIn and social media, and I always ask people, okay, great. Send me, I got a guy the other day, he said to me, he said, I'll show you how to convert your database into making $100,000 a month. I said, great. How long have you been doing this for? Because I've been doing this for four years. Great. Uh, I want you to give me five people's names, your last five clients you've turned them into with results. I want to interview them. And he, and he, he blocked me on, on LinkedIn. 
Wow. <laughs> right? He blocked me because I you called him out on it. I'm accountable. You betcha. Yeah. Right? Show me. Show me the proof. Let me do my due diligence. And that's the thing is people today is they, they, they want to have the quick fix mentality, right, where they want to do something with little, little effort to do it. And it's not going to happen. It's a pipe dream. They want the six-pack abs without having to do the sit-ups. Yeah, is what exactly. It is. So. You know, a great book to get is a book called Relentless by Tim Grover. Grover, okay. I think it is. Have you heard of the book? Yep. It's yeah. a phenomenal book where he coached professional athletes at the highest levels. And he talks about how, you know, all these diets and these fads and these workout programs is just a bunch of hype that if you want to work out, it requires, a, it's not easy. Like if you want the six packs and the abs, you got to really hustle and work your butt off over a period of time. Yeah. It's not easy. It's, it's hard work. It, it is. And that's honestly, that's the secret. We're not trying to sell anybody anything of, you know, there, here's the secret here. You just do these three steps and that's going to happen. Honestly, the bottom line is it's hard work. People don't want to do hard work. Yep. That's what it takes. So uh, going back to fear, Darren, you, you talked about um, fear being false evidence appearing real, but you know, fear is actually an anticipation of pain. Well, I totally, I couldn't agree more with you. I think it's actually another big thing is people are afraid not of failure, not of themselves. They're afraid of failing in front of somebody. And that just comes from low self-esteem potentially that wasn't developed, fear of failing. A lot of the times it's in front of the closest people to you, your parents, your family members. Um, the closest people are the ones that you're afraid to be judged by. So, I mean, personally, I had enormous amount of luck with uh, with my family. Uh, my mom just pounded self-esteem into me from a young, young age. I remember going into grade eight and just absolutely thinking I was the best looking, the smartest kid. I was four foot 11, 90 pounds soaking wet. And grade eight, I thought I was the best looking kid ever. And it wasn't until a few years later where I finally was like, wait a second, I am not the most handsome guy in the world here. So my mom had me so fooled that, about that. So the, the self-esteem aspect is such a big thing. So I wanted to point out from your perspective that you didn't have that. You had to build your own self-esteem through writing those notes down. So talk a little bit about, I guess, how that worked for you because a lot of people don't have the fortune of having it pounded into them from a young age. They have to do it themselves. For sure. Absolutely. Great, 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 great awareness. What I've done now in my life also is I've created a daily method of operation. So what I do now in my life to build my self-confidence, because I keep leveling up and playing a different game, different level, and each level that I go to in my life requires different levels of confidence because you're in front of different higher level performing people in business and in life, right? So what I do now is when I wake up in the morning, I start off with an attitude of gratitude in my life. First thing I do is I, I, I just give thanks for my life. I look at all my vital organs. I, and first thing I do is I look around the room and I'll actually presence myself with some object in the room so I'm present in my body. And then I write down every morning in my journal, I write down my top 10 personal promises to myself, which builds my confidence. Every single day? I write out my goals a minimum 730 times a calendar year. Non-negotiable. Wow. Every time I have a failure, every time I get rejected, Every time I have adversity, I go back to my journal and I write down my top 10 personal goals I'm committed to that year to achieving. So it resets my mindset. So I'm always focused on where am I going, what am I committed to, and what's my focus. So it resets my mindset and my focus. And it builds my belief and it builds my confidence. Same thing also, too, in my environment of not having self-confidence, a lot of times we hang out with people. Like I used to always hang out with four broke friends. I was the fifth. So what I did was when I started to, when I wanted to become better, I had to get around people. It's like the A students in school hang out with the A students, right? D students hang out with D students. So whenever you want to do something, like I always say to people, if, if you want to achieve a certain goal or dream in your personal life, are you shaking hands and meeting those people who are already living that lifestyle that you want to create for yourself? 
Absolutely. If not, you've got to level up. So if you can't meet these people where you live geographically in your own community, then find them on the internet. Start hanging out. Go to the environments where these people. So if you want to become a professional singer, right, or you want to become a best-selling author writing a book, then where do best-selling authors hang out? Where do professional singers hang out? Right? Where do people of influence hang out? Because there's influencers and there's decision makers. So if you're going to a networking event, most people are influencers and not decision makers. So if you want to become somebody in life, you got to get in that environment. You got to get around those people. And by start hanging out. So if you, let's say, for example, you love luxury cars, you want to own a Maserati or some kind of car, then join the Maserati club. And you're like, well, I don't have a Maserati, can't join it. Then go volunteer and wash the cars, clean the cars. I was with a guy yesterday who I've known for over 15 years. He loves luxury cars, can never afford a luxury car. So he went to a nice restaurant where people come with nice luxury cars, and he was a valet parker. And he got to drive all these luxury cars and fulfill his fantasy every day and get paid for it. And he, got, he said, Darren, you can imagine the luxury cars that I get to drive every day at this high-end restaurant. And I was, just, I was just a concierge, and I drove all these luxury cars. So I never had to buy them. I just leveraged it. I just took your advice, and I went and leveraged it. I, and so I never – yeah, it was his love. So every day, five days a week, he's working full-time at this high-end restaurant, getting paid for it, plus tips, and he's driving luxury cars. He doesn't have to own any of them. And he gets his fix eight hours a day. That's, That's phenomenal. Insane. So, so these drills that you do every morning and these these kind of rituals that you have, they they decrease the amount of fear that you Absolutely. have to even deal with on on a day to day basis. For sure. Does this also impact things such as anxiety? Like, it does for when sure. Do you experience anxiety if if you ever do? Yeah. Um, you're a very outward person, and we can tell that like yep. you you have these rituals set in stone to the point where does that just completely eliminate anxiety? Does it mitigate it? Like sure. Do you still have to do things on a daily basis? On a daily basis, yeah. basis yep. uh, to make sure that you don't fall into those types of anxiety traps. A lot of us struggle with Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. So working at a gym, being out in nature, dealing with anxiety, like right now in my life, so I'm going through a major internal thing right now with my life where is in business, very successful, maturity in that level, very successful. But the, the blind spot for me in my own life right now is, is my intellectual, um, my emotional intelligence is about age five. Because as a kid, I, my environment I grew up in, my family and my in, in school, I never matured emotionally, intelligently wise. So I learned, my father was an engineer, right? So I learned to compartmentalize things very logically. So, you know, you could tell me about, you know, some tragic thing in your life and I wouldn't show any emotion like a police officer would, right? right. Wouldn't show any emotion like a firefighter wouldn't uh, or would. But you could, I could watch a TV show on YouTube or on, the, on television called Undercover Boss. I'd cry for 20 minutes watching the show. And so what I've learned now through a therapist and a relationship coach, thank goodness to Tatiana, my partner, she put me in touch of this, was to now deal with my emotions as my blind spot. Because I, I've always been, up until recently, I've always been a very intense, highly driven, action-oriented person that was just like, you know, if you look at football's analogy, I'm the type of guy who would run down the field and you better be have a big guy to try and tackle me. Because he's going to jump my back, I'm going to take him right to the end zone with me as well. Right. And But I didn't have any emotion to it, right? So I didn't show a lot of emotion because I, I learned as a young kid, you know, when you're labeled all these things and you come from a family where you're not hugged, you're not, there's not a cuddling family, I learned to compartmentalize things. So I desensitized to everything. And so now I'm realizing the, the effect of human emotion. And so it's been a big learning curve for me in my life to, to really tap into that emotional intelligence and have a therapist that works with me twice a week, three hours a week, I get trained on that, that we hire yeah, that's, very that's cool. awesome. That's a really good. So that's and a lot of people they're embarrassed to actually go get a coach, get a counselor, get a therapist, get a psychologist, get a mentor. But really, that's where you level up is oh, when you look at your blind spots of okay, what are my weaknesses? What am I blind spot? What am I not doing? And how can I level up in this area? Well, a lot of times, you know, our, our weaknesses are known, and a lot of times they're unknown um, mm -hmm. unless you have that very objective mind. Which when we're lost in the daily affairs of things, it's very quick to tune those out. 
Yeah. For sure. No, definitely. And another thing about anxiety is just like one thing that helps me, and I'm sure you've probably got a, a, a thing that you do with this as well, is gratitude. Gratitude is Absolutely. such a big phase. So it, it plays a big role is looking back and, and knowing what I'm grateful for, mm-hmm. uh, knowing how much I actually yep. have. I have 120 daily affirmations that I do. I have it laminated. It's in my shower. Every morning when I'm in the shower, I actually read 120. Now, you might have five or 10 affirmations from things, but I have 120 I've built and accumulated over a period of time, but I read 120 affirmations every morning. Yeah. I am so happy and grateful for. I am so happy and grateful, and I just fill in the blank. I am so happy and grateful for. Right? I'm so happy and grateful for the bed I sleep in at night. I'm so happy and grateful for my feet that move throughout the day. I'm so happy and grateful for all my vital organs. I'm so happy and grateful that I can blink my eyes, wiggle my toes. I'm so happy and grateful I can breathe, I can, I can feel, I can, I can smell. See, we just take for granted all of our vital organs in our human body. We don't realize it until you have a sports injury or a physical injury. And, you know, like I fractured three ribs a couple years ago. And I tell you, it's amazing when you fracture ribs, how much that affects your body in movement. It's amazing. But you don't realize it. So we just take for granted a lot of times. And so when you walk around and you say, talk about being gratitude, you've, we, we transmit energy, vibrations of energy. People pick up on us. Animals are very in tune with energy. Okay. I went dog sledding just the other day with Tatiana. We're out in Whistler, British Columbia, went dog sledding. And our, and our guide on the dog sledding, he said, listen, these animals are very in tune with the human spirit. He said, if you want to have a phenomenal sled dog sledding experience, your energy has to be in a very high peak state of energy, a vibrational of energy, right? Because the dogs are going to sense that and it's going to have effect on their performance, these eight dogs. And he goes, what I want you to do is while you're on the sled, if you're, if you're having a fun time, then cheer on verbally like you're at a hockey game, the dogs. And the dogs get more and more excited. And when we stop to take a rest, get out of the sled and actually go pet the dogs in a positive reinforcement and praise the dogs verbally. And the dogs will connect with you and they'll appreciate that energy and they'll perform for you better and have more fun as a dog sledding team. Yeah, the dogs just pick up completely on energy. That's how they communicate the way that we talk. They yeah. communicate through energy. Uh, that's definitely a big one. And gratitude really can cool. be mm-hmm. gratitude can be something like even as simple as like like you said. I mean, we take for granted the little things like the fact that we can eat, the fact that we can walk, even things like that. But gratitude, I find, can be something even as simple as just look. I it could be so much worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm I'm sick today. Well, I could. There's there's people that are dying. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Put everything in. Perspective. Exactly. You put everything right back into perspective of just using that. It could be worse. Really, I find grounds you even when you can't. Even when it's not working to say, oh, I'm so grateful for, uh, you know, that I can smell, that I can taste, that I can yeah. eat, that I have a bed to sleep in. Sometimes just it could be worse helps. And consider everything that we go through here in North America is a first world problem. Yeah. Everything you complain about, somebody on the other side of the planet is praying about because they live in a second or third world country. So I always say to people, oh, my gosh, you're complaining about that? It's a first world problem. Right. You see, we look at we look at North America. People want to set up a business and they're so scared to take that risk. But yet, see, we live in a culture that you can go below zero. See, if you go to Africa, where I have a school over in Africa, you go there. If you don't have money, there's no bank loan. There's no credit card. There's no line of credit. There's no government grant. There's no government subsidy. Right. Nobody can co-sign a loan for you. You either got it or you don't got it. And so in North America, we can go below zero. You can go into hundreds of thousands of dollars debt. And that's the challenge that our school system today teaches us is that there's two kinds of debt. There's good debt and there's bad debt. Good debt makes you money. Bad debt costs you money, right? I I know a guy the other day who just put $10,000 on a credit card um, to buy a business, but the business is producing positive cash flow. So yeah, you put money on a credit card, which people say, oh my gosh, you put money on a credit card, 19% interest. Yeah, 
but he's making a bet. But he had, he ran it by his accountant first, and the accountant says good investment opportunity because the return on investment is greater than what you're paying in interest fees on the credit card. So he leveraged it. Plus, he gets the points from the credit card for travel. So he leveraged it. Let's give you an example. One of the things that I do is I love to support charities, go to charity events. So one of the things I do at Christmas time is I'll go to a charity auction event just before Christmas, and I'll go and I'll bid on different uh, silent auction items. And then what I'll do is when I get them, I'll pay for my credit card. So I get points on my credit card. I then get a tax deduction receipt from the charity. And then I take those gifts and I give them to friends and family for the holidays. So I win because I get the points for my credit card. I get a tax deduction receipt. The charity wins because they get money for the charity. And I get a chance to give the gift away and pay it forward. So rather than just going to a retail store and buying Christmas yeah. gifts, I go to a charity and support the charity and get the points, get the tax receipt, and make a difference. I like that. So you're you're a man of like very highly structured gratitude. Absolutely. Very clearly. And yeah. I want to kind of delve into another thing that we were talking about. We've had lead-ups to this this entire day. And uh, something that you mentioned was that you like to control the first three hours and the last three hours of your day. Mm-hmm. Um, does that all correlate into the gratitude and everything For sure. like that? Yeah, the- I've yep. recently, you know, learned that a lot of times when we're feeling anxious or we're feeling uh, bad about ourselves or we're not feeling uh, the greatest, it's because we have a lack of control in our life. That sure. control mechanism in excess is bad, but in the right amount actually helps you stay in, in touch with yourself and it helps you feel in control. So is that is that why you do that is to, con- con- you know, increase that control mechanism? For sure. One thing about being anxious as well is, is the thing is I always share with people is look at the last two weeks of your life. If you have a to-do list or a task list, everything in your personal life that you've not completed that's incomplete is not highest on your value list of priorities. And it's going to create stress or anxiety in your life. So what you need to do is find somebody through a website or a virtual assistant or a personal assistant or somebody to volunteer or a high school student you can mentor an apprentice. Find somebody else to do that task. So if you don't like housekeeping in your own home, your house is a mess, there's clutter, then obviously you don't value it as high. So you need to find somebody else. So what I do in my life to, to minimize anxiety and stress is everything that I love to do, I do. Everything I don't want to do, I actually have lists of things that everything I don't like to do in my life, I actually find somebody else to dele- I delegate it to. And when I first started in business, I didn't have the money to hire people. So I went to local community colleges and universities and schools, and you can do it online or offline. And I went to the the faculty department, and I talked to the professor or the secretary or the instructor. I said, listen, I run a small business, you know, a fairly new startup company. I don't have much money. Um, I can't afford to hire any of your students here. But what I'm willing to do is take your students on through an apprentice program, train and develop them and mentor them for a semester. They can put in X amount of hours per week with me. And at the end of the semester, I'll do up a, you know, a reference letter for them or do a, an evaluation for them. And I'll give it to you as the instructor or the professor. And then that goes towards their academic mark to get their degree. And when they graduate from college university, then I'd be happy to put some on their resume or their CV for them to go out and look for work. And if they're really good and down the road, I can get a grant or I can generate enough cash flow then I consider maybe hiring them as well. And I've had many university and college students over the years, even high school students in grade 12, that have come and apprentice with me for a period of time, and they exchange their labor with me, and I get to mentor and train and develop them. And you'd be amazed how many online universities and colleges and, and, and places, institutions would love to have that opportunity because it's practical work experience for well, these students. you that the right way. It's, you're not, it, it's almost like a pitch. Like you're, do, you're not just doing it for yourself. It's not selfish by uh, by nature, it's also selfless. For sure, because you're having mutual mutual benefit there. Absolutely, that's so, actually one of the first thing I things I learned from Darren the first time we met was uh, the most interesting thing is that that you talked about Darren was when you go and you meet somebody for the first time, 
your idea is not what goes through your mind is not okay what can i get from this person mm-hmm. which is what 99% of people do it's how can i provide value how For can sure. i enrich this person's yeah. life and you even go as far as saying that's your question yeah. like that's the thing that you ask people when they meet you and yeah. it throws them off guard i have a specific question i ask in fact i ask when i for example, i just meet you guys at some event right some trade show or some event i'll walk up to you and i don't even know you and maybe have a name tag and i'll say listen i'm just curious would i would it be okay if i ask you a personal question and right then, I, when I ask you a person, say, is it okay if I have your permission to ask you a personal question? I got your attention. You're like, what the heck is he going to ask me? Right? And I say, um, I know you're here at this trade show. I know you're here at this conference or event. I'm just curious, what is the best way for me to contribute to your life right now? What do you need? And the number one consistent answer, you can ask 10 people this, nine out of 10 people say, I don't know, because they've never been asked that question. But what it does, you build a deeper level of relationship with poor people. They're like, oh my gosh. And I've had some celebrities, I've had top CEOs, I've had top business leaders say, you know, I'm good. I've got a whole staff or I've got a whole people team of people that work with me. I'm like, listen, what's coming up? I'll give you an example. I had a guy one time, major CEO, guy I wanted to meet. And I spent about three years trying to meet this guy. I couldn't get past the gatekeepers. Finally, I heard this guy was speaking at a rotary club. And I phoned up a guy who was actually in the same Rotary Club. I said, can you get me in? And he goes, Darren's event sold out. I said, listen, I'll wash dishes, whatever it takes. He goes, let me see what I can do. So he managed to get me in last minute. I got to go into this event. And I went up to this guy. And this guy was an older guy and just blew me off. Right? It wasn't just, we had no rapport. And anyways, I was listening to this guy talking about how he, he was having this big party at his house because he just sold off one of his companies and had a liquidity event. And how the guy that was his gardener uh, was smoking dope and his wife fired him. And he couldn't find somebody to clean his swimming pool and cut his grass. So I walk up to the guy. I said, listen, what's your address? He goes, what for? I said, I'm going to come cut your grass and clean your swimming pool. So he gave me his address. I went and bored a lawnmower, went to this guy's house and cleaned the pool and the swimming pool. And I I built a relationship with his wife. And so when when I was done volunteering, doing this work, he's okay, thanks. We'll see ya. And his wife's like, no, he's going to come to the party. He goes, well, I never invited him. And she goes, I invite him. He's staying. And I had my clothes in the car because I was hoping that was, I wanted to stay. Yeah, I got to stay at that goal. party. And because I built a relationship with her, she just adored me and loved me. as like one of her sons. He couldn't give me the time of day. And then after a while, I got to know him. Uh, you know, he just, he didn't trust men. He had a real challenge with men and he hired mainly women in his companies. And eventually he started to like me and, you know, after a period of time, but that's how I got to meet him. And one of the things when I meet a lot of successful people, when I go there, first thing I do is I acknowledge them with charities they're involved with, human rights, different things like that. I acknowledge them. You know, I, I, I met a guy the other day. He's a very, very wealthy guy. He's a billionaire. And he's on the fourth floor of the list. And I said, I said, I want to thank you for all the jobs that you create in all your businesses. I know you employ over 100,000 people in all your companies. I just want to acknowledge you for the difference you're making. He's like, well, thank you. Right? And then I just said, you know, what, what is it can I do to contribute to your life? And the thing was, he actually gave me his private cell phone number. I didn't ask for it. But here's what I also do is a step further. Every time I want to meet a center of influence on my must-meet list of somebody who's influential, I actually have, like I've not met Sir Richard Branson yet, but if you look at my mobile phone, I actually have a picture of him in my phone. I have his first, his last name. I have his website. I have his birth date. I have his wedding anniversary, all this information I got publicly off the internet. So I act as if already that I've already met these people. Interesting. So I start to profile them. You betcha. I act as if I've already met them. And so I, I, I've always done my homework on people I want to meet. Every year, um, I have a must-meet list of 100 people I want to meet around the world. And I started doing this 15-plus well, years ago. And the first year I did it, I had 100 people on my list. and or No, probably I had 20 on my list, 20 people on my list the first year I did this. And I met a gentleman. I was living in Kelowna. 
British Columbia, and I met a guy in Los Angeles who I got introduced to, and this guy knew 13 out of the, no, pardon me, he knew 11 out of the 20 people that I wanted to meet on my list that were in his own personal Rolodex. Because back in 1967, Stanley Milgram did a wonderful case study in the United States of America called The Law of Six Degrees of Separation. And Stanley Milgram discovered in the case study that we were six degrees of separation from anybody on planet Earth. Now, because of social media in the last few years, we're now less than three degrees of separation from anybody on the planet Earth. So it's not what you know, it's who you know, it's who they know that knows you. And the key thing is, and I'll share something with you that's interesting. We are... We're, we're coming into an era right now that the majority of people on the planet are not aware of this, okay? My background is I've trained a lot of people in human resources and a lot of the top corporations around the world. If you look at right now, a lot of young men and women that are going to school and college university, they're coming out and they're going off from high school to college university, and they're so focused on getting good academic marks in school and building up a good resume or a good CV. Okay, here's what's going to happen. You can, you can recall this in three to five years, or it may happen sooner. What's happening right now behind the scenes is a lot of human resource departments and companies. Think about this. You guys are both business owners. If you had a chance to hire somebody, somebody comes in here, or you meet somebody at a function, or somebody gives you a referral, and this person's got a great resume or a great CV, and you think, wow, very impressed with what this guy's got or she's got in terms of academic education or background. And then somebody else refers you and says, hey, I want to introduce you to this young guy or young woman Man, they're, they have a huge presence on social media. Like when they do a YouTube video, they have thousands, if not millions of people follow them on YouTube. When they do a post on Facebook or LinkedIn or Snapchat or Twitter or Instagram, you wouldn't believe the ripple effect of people that follow them, okay? Who are you going to hire if you're both entrepreneurs? You know, hire the person with a really good resume and a degree in education or somebody who's built a personal brand for themselves. Definitely the social media guy. Somebody who's put in the actual effort. It's actually so funny you say that. Yeah, it's it's actually applicable right now. It's actually so funny you say that because that's actually one of the main things I look for when I hire somebody. It's not even necessarily like, do they have a personal brand? But it's, okay, your resume can say one thing, but if your social media and personal life says another thing, like for example, if you're saying A, but you're showing me B, Mm What am I gonna what am I gonna hire on? That's so so important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that's that's a that's a really, really great point about the about actually looking at social media because it's something that not just small businesses are doing, but big businesses are actually starting to do now. It's it makes a big difference is what you do what you do outside, what you're what you're doing in your own personal life because everything's on display now. Everything's documented. Absolutely. Everything's out there in the world. I was on the airplane the other day and I sat beside a guy who owns a tire store, small bricks and mortar tire store. And he said to me, he's an older guy, and he says, listen, I, I have no interest in social media. I'm never going to create a social media thing. And I said, well, how long have you been this? Because I've had my tire store for over 30 years. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. If we take a young guy or a young woman and they open up a tire store and they're very active on social media and they're talking about the best tires to get for the different seasons and the research and customer reviews and all that kind of stuff, who's going to have long-term, even though you've been around for 30 years running this bricks and mortar tire business, down the road with the new generation of millennials coming up, who's going who's gonna, to, you know, right now, yeah, you're dominating the market, but within the next three to five years, people are going to say, I'm going to go to this old bricks and mortar tire store guy who's been around for a long time or some young guy who's doing videos on tires, how to put tires on, talks about the tread, talks about the size of tires, gives you an education, informs you about tires. The person who's, who's engaged interactively with the consumer, with the buyer, is going to have higher success rate than what you're doing right now. He's like, well, I never looked at it that way before. And I said, so what I advise you to do when you leave this airplane is, is inter- find yourself or introduce you to people who are good at internet online marketing and start. You don't have to be the face and the brand of it. You can be behind the scenes. Yeah. 
but you need to start getting out there on social media and building that brand awareness in the public eye so you start to engage the consumers through their mobile phones and their laptop and desktop computers. And it was like a complete, like he was trying to make sense of this. He's like, man, this is hard to make sense of because he was traditional business, traditional bricks and mortar, you know, customer, we run ads in the newspaper. We have a yellow page ad in the, in the phone book and people come into us and he couldn't wrap his head around and make sense of the new traditional marketing now of how social media is changing the game. Well, and that is, is our businesses as well. Like yeah. a lot of the older restaurants now, I hardly even notice them because they're not on my Instagram or my Facebook feed. Mm-hmm. And same with, uh, same with realtors in my business. It's the same thing. Um, I mean, you can coast off your name for as long as you can, but are you really going to be top of mind when things are crowded on social media? For sure. I try and crowd social media. I try and always be there. Uh, you know, people, you can, you can email me, you can Facebook message me, you can Instagram, you can direct message me. There's all these other avenues. And so I'm wondering, you know, like right now there's still this stronghold. Mm -hmm. How long is it going to be? Just like you said, like right now he's got his tire store. But how long until that shift actually takes over? And I think it's sooner than most people think. Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean the big thing with social media right now is it's it's a curse and a gift at the same time. It's you can go directly to consumer. There's no middleman anymore. They're they've been cut out. The difficulty now is that the creative is gonna be the variable. What mm-hmm. you put out there is gonna dictate your success because for example, when I'm posting an ad or anything, content, whatever it is on social media for my restaurant, I'm not just competing with other restaurants per se competing, but I'm also trying to compete for the viewer space of every other business that's on social media. You want to dominate the space. I'm dom- You're dominating the space, but it's like, okay, it's not just restaurants now. It's realtors are trying to get that attention as well. It's yeah. everybody's trying to get that attention. So how do you break through right now? It goes right back to exactly what you said about face-to-face interactions. Mm-hmm. Now you do it digitally. Mm-hmm. How can I contribute to your life? How can I provide you value? Mm-hmm. That's how you break free because we're so adverse to advertising right now that if you can provide value to the end consumer, if you can make them laugh, if you can create a reaction out of them, yeah. if you can teach them mm-hmm. something, you have their business. Absolutely. Provide yeah, so much value upfront because eventually those favors will come back to you in a, in 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 the selfless type of way. Like that's why you give the the value upfront, just like you've said numerous times in this whole thing. Well, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do this for you because yeah, you're trying to earn their business, but you're also not trying to just earn their business. It's also their attention, their trust, um, everything that they have on their side. You want to use it for your side, but in a positive manner. You know, no, you're not trying to take advantage of these mm-hmm. people. That those were never your goals, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But that always has an impact. Absolutely. I met a gentleman years ago. I was on the road when I was traveling, and on Fridays he would give free red roses to people who pulled up at the gas station on a Friday afternoon. So he he had a, he had a joint venture with a local flower shop, and when you pull up to the gas station on Friday, you you got gas that was full service. You had to go into the gas station because the money's made in the confectionery, the concession, right? When you go inside, so you had to get out of your vehicle, full service, and walk into the vehicle, into the dealers, into the uh, car, de- or into the uh, gas station. And you went in there. There was a bucket of red roses. You took a rose out. So guys that were coming home on a Friday hadn't seen their girlfriend or their wife all week. They got a free red rose for getting gas. And he said for what it cost him for that red rose, when a guy would go in, he'd look at a magazine, he'd buy some motor oil, he'd buy some chips, he'd buy a chocolate bar, he'd get a lottery ticket. He said automatically he got the guy out of his vehicle to go into the gas station and buy stuff. And so the rose was the lost leader. And so the guy's coming home with a red rose to impress his wife on a Friday night, right? So he's getting points for that in his relationship. And also, he's spending more money inside that concession, and they're building a relationship with them. So he said he had lineups of people every Friday at the gas bar because guys would come there and get a red rose. So if some guy's in trouble or he wants to impress his girlfriend, he's going on a date, he'd come get a free red rose. Plus, buy a bunch of stuff. 
Yeah. yeah. It'd be it'd be interesting because I mean, like for example, if you're if you're in trouble with your girlfriend, you just go over and get a red rose. But now you're like, oh, I don't know if this is gonna cut it this time. Maybe I gotta get some chocolates. Oh, maybe, yeah. I gotta get some, <laughs> maybe I gotta get some other stuff. So she like, likes that drink. She <laughs> likes ice cream. Oh my goodness! Before you know it, he's walking out of there with a uh, hundred dollars worth of stuff. Yeah. You got lineups. You got lineups of guys not just trying to impress their girlfriends. Guys trying to repent for what they've done. <laughs> Darn red rose. Yeah. She looked the gosh. You know what's the return on his investment for those roses? But just one simple idea but look at the impact that's a great story that's a really great story awesome are you good if we do a quick little uh rapid fire round here darren absolutely awesome you got a couple questions no okay so um one of the things you talk about is uh when you're in the people business there's two ways to do it and i think this is a great time to segue into it is you're either transactional or you're relational Mm -hmm. quickly tell us a little bit about the difference between those and what you know for sure. Value is yep. added from each of those. There's a lot of businesses out there today, whether they're on or offline, that are strictly transactional, right? It's just you, you just transact. It's all about, you know, fill out the application, transact the, the you know, the, the merchandise, whether it's through a checkout or it's you go someplace, it's just transactional. Relational is where you get to know the customer or the client and there's a follow-up. Give an example. You look at GoDaddy.com. Are they relational or transactional? They're masters at follow-up. Okay, they, they, they follow up with me. I, I, get, I get a call from GoDaddy every month. I get emails frequently. They, they actually called me just a few days ago. I was driving out to Whistler to go dog sledding, and they called me up to say, well, you know what? The, the gentleman called me out of Toronto, and he says, I just want to call you, Mr. Jack. I know you're busy. I just want to call you to appreciate your business for 2017. That's, that's just a courtesy call. He said, I'm not here to call you anything else. just want to just call you. That's cool. And I was impressed with GoDaddy.com just to call me. You know, it took 30 seconds, right? He's just going through his list in the call center, but he called me to appreciate my business for last year. There you go. That's a, it's, it's a little, it's a, honestly the little things like that, because now you see that they're not just reaping the rewards of keeping your business. They're farming their business rather than hunting for more business. Mm-hmm. But now you're mentioning them and you're telling X amount of people, you could potentially share it on social media. Mm-hmm. The exponential effect of that is going to reap enormous rewards for a simple thing as a call. Absolutely. You know, the big thing is too, is like, I still like, like, for example, uh, later this week, I'm actually flying to Toronto to meet a gentleman from Europe. He's going to be in the Toronto Pearson International Airport. I'm flying there to meet with him for a one hour meeting. So I'm leaving, I'm flying from Vancouver to Toronto, meeting him there for one hour and then flying back to Vancouver. I love that. So story. I'm flying yeah, eight and a half, nine hours. I, years ago, I did a, I did a contract for corporate training with a company over in London, England. It was a major bank and I was living in Kelowna, British Columbia. And it was in 2007 and I didn't have the money to fly from Kelowna to Vancouver, Vancouver to London, England. Okay, so I phoned up a buddy of mine who was at his back, and I took care of him a few times and stuff like that with his rent when he was late. And he said, "Listen, if you ever need me, I'm your lifeline." So good. I may call you sometime, right? And so I called him up one day. I said, "Listen, this guy and I are going back and forth by fax machine, and he wants." And I told him I was going to fly to London, England, to meet with him face to face at a Starbucks coffee shop for a face to face meeting. You remember, I'm flying from continent to continent on a proposal for a corporate training contract. And he had all these people from across the United States, Canada, and all over Europe applying for this opportunity. So I flew over there. Guy was blown away. Met with him for 22 minutes face-to-face in a coffee shop. Came back. Seven months later, he sends me a fax. And he said, we approved your contract to bring you over to do corporate training. He couldn't believe that I'd fly from Canada over to the United Kingdom for a 15-minute meeting with him with no guarantee. See, that's the thing you got to do is are you willing to get in your car, get on a plane to go someplace for a meeting? I'm going to meet with a guy for a one-hour meeting. That's a, that's a very you know high level deal, but but out of all the people he deals with around the world, how many people actually fly in to meet with him? I said, where are you going to be? So I'll be in Toronto, Canada. I said, good, I'll fly there and meet you. 
He's going to fly from Vancouver to Toronto. I'll meet. I'll rearrange my schedule. I'll fly there because I when I'm on the airplane, I can I can leverage my time. I can be doing other things. Plus, I'm going to be on the airplane. See, I go on the airplanes to network. See, if I fly business class or first class, when I'm on there, if I fly four flights, I'm going to meet one decision maker of those four flights that I'm going to turn into a monetization of a business deal that's going to pay for my other three flights. Always ride in the front of the plane and sit in the back of the car. <laughs> that's awesome. Cool. That actually, that segues right into the next, uh, the next rapid fire question is uh, just the importance of networking. So that's, that's awesome. We'll actually, we'll move on because that's, that's just a great point is getting out there and, and being a master networker. meeting as I'll many spend something on networking. Possible. One of the things that I do, I do a lot of dinner parties yep. in my house. I always invite the FedEx driver, the UPS driver, and the DHL driver to my dinner parties. They don't always show up, but I always invite them. And the reason why is they know all the gatekeepers in business, and they know who the decision makers are because their decision makers' names are usually on the packages. Or they have to sign for it, and they have to meet them directly. You would be amazed if you start getting to know who the courier drivers are in your area, how much intel or information they actually have on the street of what's going on in those companies and organizations. That's pretty cool. That's very interesting. That's a really good point. So going on that, then what are some other ways to reach decision makers? You Can, mentioned a few ways with, uh, yeah, give, give us some actionable ways. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the ways on how not to, re, how, how you can't get through to them. Okay. Cause I, I can do both. Um, one of the things is I, when I was doing my, all my corporate training businesses, um, a lot of times I would get turned away and get rejected to meet a decision maker in whether it's a financial services company, it's a real estate company, mortgage work, company, whatever industry it's in retail, and what I would do is I'd build relationships with the courier drivers and the receptionists or the gatekeepers, and I'd find out when that man or woman, so for example, if we're here in British Columbia where most corporate offices are in Toronto or Mississauga, Ontario, in Canada. So what I would do is I'd find out when that man or woman is flying from here to Toronto on Air Canada or WestJet Airlines, and I would actually book a flight on the same flight with them to be in close proximity. Okay, and so I had we're in this aircraft flying three, four, five hours to get to where we got to go to. And my intention it didn't always work; it was a strategy to actually get to know these people and sit down with them. And by the time I get off the airplane in Toronto, I've got my next meeting. And that's the thing is what I want to do is you want to always find out when you're dealing with decision makers, find out as much information. Where do they hang out? Right? Do they have a family? Do they have kids? What do they do on the evenings and weekends? Um, do they like golf, different sports, different hobbies, different activities? And finally, if you can't meet them in that environment, where can you meet them off-site? Okay? Because sometimes when they're in their work environment, they're under a high-pressure, high-stress, high-deadline environment. But like, I, I met a guy one time he's a decision-maker. I was watching this guy, and he's a type A, real intense guy. And, and, and you know, he quickly made decisions, but I knew his passion was sailing. And I knew on Saturday mornings, he'd always go sailing. And what I found out, because I found out where he lived, so I went and talked to one of his neighbors, that if you talk to him while he's sailing, he'll give you all the time in the world because he's doing something he loves to do. It's a hobby of his. He's in a so, different state of mind. You betcha. Yeah. And he doesn't have that responsibility, that pressure, right, and that stress. So I went, I went and pulled up in the Yacht Club parking lot one time in Vancouver and waited for him to arrive. And I went and met with him while he was there, and he was casual. I ended up doing business with the guy. Still to this day, I still keep in touch with him. So you got to think, you got to be nonlinear and you got to, you got to think of ways that most do what most people are not willing to do. See, it's like when, 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 um, I'll give you an example. When people write business proposals and they're pitching something to remember prescription before diagnosis is called malpractice in the medical industry. And a lot of times when people are at trade shows, conferences, workshops, seminars, they're prescribing before they diagnose. People come into you because you guys run, you run a retail business. They come to you and say, oh my gosh, you need to get this, this thing for your business. Well, you don't know anything about me. You yep. haven't even built a relationship with me. You're no prescribed you before are. you're diagnosing, yeah. right? That's so true. Get it all the time. Emails, like just being on the, the Remax list of emails. It's like, 
I get all these random suppliers or random people like, oh, I can convert X amount of leads more. And it's like, I don't even know who you are. It's like, I'm definitely not going to even pay any attention to your email. First of all, I went into my junk folder. So like, you got to call me up or something like that. Um, on top of that, you didn't even know me well enough to know that I work in a team and I have, you know, I don't, I don't share in a lot of that decision-making. So yeah. it's a, it's a huge, it's a, it's well, a, a lot, exactly. A lot of these coaches out there, right? I always say to a lot of these top coaches, listen, you want to be a top coach, pick a corporation, an industry that you get, you can get results in, phone up the decision-maker, HR manager, say, listen, I want to talk, take your top five people in your salespeople in your company. And for the next three months, I'm going to work with them, you know, X amount of hours per week, no charge. And at the end of the at the end of the quarter, I want you to measure the results of the increase of sales, and because measure the results, and if you see an increase of the numbers on your scoreboard in the metrics based on the data analytics, then we can consider having a conversation about a contract. But I want to prove to you for the next ninety days or Q one or two or three or four first to show you that. Very cool, very cool. Um, I'm gonna switch it just a little bit here. Um, Thank you for that actionable advice. That there's there's a lot of stuff that we can take from that actually. if you could talk to yourself from 10 years ago, what would you tell yourself as advice? Uh, don't do things by yourself. Uh, always have a team of people around you. Always have an advisory board of people. So find people who are best in class, who have best, best practices, and go to them and collaborate with them. You'll condense time frames of periods of time. You'll be more efficient, more effective, and you'll mitigate risk and liability. Um, always, and and same thing too, when you're dealing with certain things, business deals, always have it run it by an accountant or a lawyer or somebody as a trusted advisor. That's awesome. Now let's segue into the, like something that's along the same lines then is, okay. So going back, those were, that was the advice for you 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Now somebody that's at that phase, how do you, you've talked about how to plan the next 10 years of your life, Absolutely. how to strategize that. Can you give us a few quick tidbits on that? First thing, key thing is write down, uh, look at look at a list, for example, the top 50 things that you'd love to achieve in the next decade of your life. A lot of people have what they call a bucket list. Eliminate bucket list and call it a live list. What are life experiences that you want to create in your life? And then what you want to do is out of the 50 items, look at the 50 items that you want to create in your life and then right beside each 50 item, once you've done the 50 items, can you achieve this in one year, three year, five year, or 10 years? And then the key thing is, is purpose is stronger than object. So a lot of times people say, I want a million dollars. My question is, what for? Because if you talk about the, if somebody says, oh, I want to live in a multi-million dollar house. What for? I want a multi-million dollar house. No, you want a multi-million dollar house because of the experiences you can create with your family, kids, dinner parties, Easter, Christmas, Thanksgiving, right? So what are the experiences that you want to create? So you start to link the experiences to actually having the multi-million dollar home, right? If you want to have a, a nice luxury car, okay, what's the experience you want to have by having that car? Right? Do you want to, do you want to take people out? Do you want to inspire people? So always look at the the experiences, the purpose rather than the object. The why. The why. Exactly. No, that's an honestly that's really yeah. great, really great actionable point. Yeah, too too much to even go on. You've given us like this this huge <laughs> barrage of value. Like we we can't be more thankful to have you on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, before before we kind of wrap it up, I mean, as thankful as we are, and we know that we could go for probably five more hours with you. This is, this is incredible. At least we could. And, um, we want to talk about, you know, some stuff that, that are, you know, is very important to you. Sure. Um, so you have, you mentioned some schools in Africa that you sponsor, you own. Yeah, so we look after a school. We, we look after a school. Uh, if you go to ugandachildren.com, okay. it's a school. I have a partner over there. We have currently right now, we have 396 children that live in the inner city, the slums of Kampala, Uganda, East Africa. 
costs about $8,000 Canadian dollars to, to fund the school every year to feed, clothe, and educate the children. We're not going to take it to 1,000 uh, orphan children, inner-city kids in the village. We're going to build a new school for the next five years. And so we'll be raising capital for that and, and taking on supplies. So if you want to help out, just reach out to us. Uh, and you can do more research at ugandachildren.com. And the thing is, it's life or death of these children. And somebody will say, why, why do you pick a third-world country? Um, you know what? There's a lot of stuff I do locally in, in British Columbia and in Canada, but we live in a global village today, and I believe it takes a whole village to raise a child. And I get great joy out of working in third world countries because it really allows me to feel more gratitude of the things that I take for granted living in a first world country in terms of what I see in their third world country is completely different. So you're using that sense of gratitude Absolutely. to help lift them up at the same time. Yeah, I like that. and make a difference. That's really cool. Um, another way that you like to make a difference is what we want to talk about next is you have a, a show coming up here. Yeah, I have a Darren Jacklin show. So Darren what I, Jacklin show. Tell us you know, well, what it is is I get flooded with so much email and social media traffic all the time, and I can't respond to everything like that, and I've got teams of people now that work with me. So what I thought was how can I, – I love people. I just love people. I like to make a difference in people's lives. I thought how can I provide massive value to people's lives? And so I thought, you know, my journey, my backstory has been quite an amazing story and I've influenced a lot of people. So on social media now, on Facebook Live, all different social media channels, we, we have a show called The Darren Jacklin Show where I come on sometimes a half, or, half an hour, sometimes an hour, and I train and develop people with real life stuff, with systems, strategies, tips, tools, techniques. Sometimes we have an action guide, like a workbook that we email to people and they can follow through, but it's all practice. So I'm actually like your mentor. I'm actually like your advisor. I'm like you're on your advisory board. So I speak directly to you no matter where you are in the world, no matter where you're on the planet. And I show you on ways to overcome self-esteem challenges, uh, you know, problems that I've had, adversities, challenges, how you do it. Not only from a motivational thing, but from an inspiration, but also from a way to actually really support you. Like, like some of the stuff that I'm going to train you on, corporations have paid me tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of dollars over the years to train and develop them on. You get it all free. All you do is going to show up. And that's it. And so my intention with this is just to pay it forward. and pa- I'm in a place right now in my life where I achieved a lot of success and I want to pay it forward and pass it on. And then I start to go in the next stage of my life is legacy building. So I exp- also I ask for you to do with this in terms of how you repay me is pay it forward and pass it on. If you like this stuff, share it, like it and pay it forward and get more people to follow to it because hurt people hurt people. And if we can get people to follow some of the stuff I'm going to train to develop you on, you're going to see results in your life personally and professionally, and you get results and you start doing better, it levels you up. We start to create societies and people in the world today that do better so they can they can serve more people, right? So I want to see people prosper and, and people break this, this lack and scarcity mentality and start to come from abundance and prosperity. There's no lack on our planet. There's a total abundance and prosperity, but we've been trained and developed. See, you have to understand that, that media and marketing companies over the years, they, they've spent billions of dollars preying on people's insecurities, especially with women. You look at you look at on look at all the television commercials today and interview in magazines, how many times a woman sees a commercial and it preys on her insecurities that she doesn't look good, she's not smart enough, she's not beautiful enough, she needs, you know, she needs to have breast implants, butt suction, liposuction, all this stuff. They prey on people's insecurities. It's not it's not real. So if we can build people's confidence through the Darren Jacklin show, then advertisers have to change their strategy because it's not going to work because the masses are going to start to see it's not working anymore. So you betcha. And I'm going to be disruptive. I'm going to, I'm going to show people some things of what you've been taught that is actually not true. 
right? One thing is knowledge is not power. Knowledge is only potential power. I'm going to show people that when they go to school and they get a great, uh, you know, they get a great education and they leave with a grade point average and a, and a school, you know, a school report card, that in life, it's your personal financial network state when you get older to go to the banks, to get a loan, all that stuff. So I'm going to show things that you were taught as a kid that actually is not accurate. It's not true. It's a bunch of fluff. You're actually buying the sizzle, not the steak. And the same thing in business. There's, there's people out there that are teaching you stuff today that's a bunch of theory that does not work in the real life of business in the world. But they're profiting off it, and they won't tell you the goods. But I'm going to expose it and show you. And ask you, don't believe I'm going to tell you. Go out, and do your own, do, go out and do your own experiment. Experiment yourself. Exactly. See what happens. And you'll see at the end of the month, you'll see the reasons or results. That's super cool. So that starts January 15th? Yeah, January 15th. And we're going to be on. Just just go to DarrenJacklin.com. You can follow me on social media. And you'll see the social media messages that will come out. And you can follow it live or it will be archived on the Darren Jacklin Show. And it will be all over the world. Well, we're lucky that's tomorrow for us. That's yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, we get uh, something to study. It's a neat that's peak. That's for sure. Well, uh, oh, okay, so for light. those listening, the lights just went out. So the lights beside you on the other side of the door. There you go. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you know, we can end it here. Like, thank you so much. Uh, so yeah, definitely go check out. Was it DarrenJacklin.com? Yeah, DarrenJacklin.com. You can do any research on me, and right on DarrenJacklin.com, we'll give you all the links to all the social media sites that we're on. That's awesome. Yeah, because th this whole show is not just is not about uh, David and I and our team. Uh, it's about the guests that we bring on sure. and the value that you guys can can portray to the public. So thank you so much for for making an impact not only on our lives Absolutely. but also the lives of our community and the people around us, and obviously the people eventually province wide, nationwide, worldwide that will eventually get to Absolutely. listen to our show. So we really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm gonna thank you. Your hand on uh, sure. on camera. Thank here. you so much, Darren. Really appreciate it. No, it's been it's been really amazing. Thank you so much for all the the work that you do and for for taking the time to come out and uh, and do the show with us. Actually, for those of you that are watching and listening, leave a review, leave a comment, whatever you want. If you want to see Darren back on this show, we will do a Darren part two and potentially sure. more because, like Shelby said, we could go for another five six hours easy. Yeah, no <laughs> We're just getting warmed up. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, and, and definitely till next time. For sure, appreciate it. Thanks to everyone. Thanks, Thanks Darren. Man.